You have been a continuing source of inspiration for me, and I always look forward to her next record. Well, and appreciate that. Yeah, they're pretty few and far between, but uh, yeah. <laughs> Especially there was a big there was a big gap uh, until that record came out. I think at least it it felt big. That was about eight. Yeah, that was about eight years. So yeah. if it if it felt long, then yeah, it was. I was, was starving. Long. I was starving, man. Oh. Uh, because. Uh, I think in the meantime, I had gotten a chance to play with Ted Poor, and he told me that you uh -huh. guys had been recording something and that you were in the process of mixing it or then adding a choir on top of it. I, I don't know what the process <laughs> was exactly, but uh, he told me... Yeah, well, let's just say it wasn't all done live in the studio. Yeah. Yeah, that one, it just took a long time because A, I'm super slow with everything. You know, it takes me a long time to write, and a lot of these tunes are pretty long form. Um, so the more notes, the longer it's going to take me. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Another complicating factor was um, Schooly Sverson, who played on, you know, probably about half of the record, left the country sort of halfway through the project just because it was taking so long and he had, you know, other plans. And so, um, you know, luckily I, I was able to get John Patitucci to uh, do the rest of it. So I was very fortunate, but it just, you know, meant that it took extra time. Yeah. I wonder when you compose these big form pieces or how did you arrive uh, in the first place uh, at allowing yourself to continue a piece, not saying, okay, that's it. This is, this is what I got. You know, I have one page, I have two pages. Uh, how did you get into the process of really, you know, staying with an idea and then exploring it in so many ways? Well, it's exactly that. It's just committing to an idea and seeing what the idea really wants to be. And yeah, exploring every possible avenue that the idea could take and then mapping out a form more or less you know, that, that helps me to do that before I start. Um, and they're just sort of filling in the filling in the gaps. So in a way, you're constructing a roadmap on where the composition will go, you know, as a yeah, as structurally I'm, or as I'm developing, uh, as I'm getting ideas and you know, encounter ideas. I'm also forming a form, and the form will, you know, it always changes. But it's just good to kind of have an overview of what the thing is going to look like. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I really never set out to write a 15 or 25 minute piece that's not ever a conscious goal of mine sure but it just seems like this idea wants to go through this journey and end here and sometimes it's really super long mm -hmm. relatively and sometimes it's just like yeah like half a page mm. you know? so um when do you commit your your tunes to or your ideas to paper how how is your process maybe you can get a little uh, further into What's, what's actually happening when you compose? Some of the solo guitar pieces <clears throat> I don't write out ever. Or, I, you know, eventually when I, I put out a couple of books and I wanted to include some of the solo pieces, but I, I had to sort of relearn them and then transcribe them. For some reason, I just, maybe because I'm lazy, I just don't, don't write them out. You know, I spend so much time writing it that it just lodges itself in my memory whether I, I want it or not, you know. Yeah. I mean, I'll, I'll write out like sketches and ideas as I'm writing so that I don't, um, you know, forget, especially lately because I pretty much forget everything now. So I'm writing out a lot more stuff than I used to. But the, the ensemble pieces, I, I generally uh, write them out as I go but they tend to be on just like 100 scraps of paper. 
for a long time until I realized, well, someone's actually going to have someone else other than me is going to have to make sense of this. So that, yeah. that put it in some kind of readable form. Do you write it on the computer then or by hand? No, by hand. Yeah. I tried Sibelius once and I, I don't know, I just didn't like it. Yeah, I'm probably the last person on earth. I'm with you. To not I'm use. Oh, well, good. We're the last two. Yeah. Great. Um, but I, I really enjoy just the, the process of, you know, putting a pencil on paper. and Yeah. There's, there's a magic to it. Yeah. I like to think that I'd write differently that way. Maybe not. But I just, I like the tactile sensation of of that process. And I enjoy trying to write things neatly. It's, you know, like I'm not at all a visual artist. Like I have zero artistic talent, but I do enjoy sort of making something that looks nice yeah. when I put it in final form. Of course, then I'd like hire somebody to put it in finale for me. So yeah. I'm the only one that'll ever see the manuscript, but it's okay. Unless you're going to share them with me, maybe. I could do that. Sure. <laughs> I'd, I'd love to see it. I have your book, you know, but I'd love to, I'm also, I'm very interested in notation and handwritten charts. So I'd, I'd love to see. Oh, yeah, yeah, I'd be happy to. I mean, I, don't, I guess I would just have to yeah, scan it. And I'll, I'll do no, that as soon I, as we're done. I'd love to. I'd love to see it. Um, one of my favorite pieces of yours is Ellenville. Uh, maybe you can talk about a little bit what, what the story behind that song is and how you wrote it. And what, what do you remember when you think of that piece? You know, at some point a few years ago, I think I got an email from the Chamber of Commerce of Ellenville, which is a town in you know upstate new york asking about that piece and what's my connection to the city and and i had to tell them that I, actually i'd never been there i only saw i would when i would drive upstate i would see signs for ellenville and at the time i wrote it i had a girlfriend named ellen okay. and <laughs> put the two together yeah and that was <laughs> that's the entire story in that tune title mm. you know the tune itself is just kind of started like any other tune i just started sort of fooling around on the guitar and came up with this arpeggio pattern and just kind of like a one very simple one four uh, thing but it's sort of a specific finger picking pattern and kind of just went from there mm -hmm. i think the melody was not the first idea that came later after i had the the setting mm -hmm. i love that you have the blues inside you know in the in the middle there's a little sort of blues slow blues form well you know i wanted it to come out on a jazz label so <laughs> <laughs> yeah it makes My sense concession yeah it, that's funny someone else pointed that out to me about that tune i never really thought about i guess it is sort of technically one four five but <laughs> blues was about the last thing sure i was thinking of at yeah. that moment yeah a couple of motives in the guitar part and then a couple of motives in the uh the vocal melody that are pretty much form the basis for the whole tune. So I just, one way or another, explore uh, explore those. I got one um, really horrible review for that record, and, and the reviewer was particularly incensed that I would play a bunch of random guitar arpeggios for 14 minutes. Like, <laughs> why would I put the listener through that? Yeah, yeah. So, quoting There's No Greater Love on that tune, is it also like a message to oh, you? Oh, no, I did that. Yeah. Oh, that's pretty subtle. Yeah, no, good catch. <laughs> I mean, isn't it was, was it then like a message to Ellen or, or whatever? 
I'm just now trying to put the dots together. Now you said it's it's for you can a lady. put more dots together than actually exist, I guess. <laughs> but um, no, that was definitely not conscious. That's um, no, that's way more subtle than than I would ever uh, <laughs> be able to conceive of. <laughs> it, for me, it was always like, wow, why is he putting uh, "There's no greater love" quote in his composition? That's that takes some courage, you know. But I mean, rhythmically, it's completely different, isn't it? Of course, or... of course. It's just those notes. <laughs> <laughs> If you add I mean, them up together, look, it sounds there's like twelve of them. I mean, eventually, you're gonna <laughs> end up true. quoting "There is no greater love" yeah, at some point true. in your life. You know, you know, it's funny. It reminds me of um, many years ago. I was traveling with the Maria Schneider band, and sometimes some of the uh, concerts were filmed, and sometimes they would play the film of the concert in the bus, in the tour bus the next day, and people would watch it. And I, I th think we were playing the tune El Viento when we were watching it, and, and Craig Gisbert goes to me, hey, nice nice people quote, by the way, last night. And I'm like, what? I quoted people? <laughs> and then uh, and then just at that moment, I look up in there, and, and then I'm just like really verbatim just quoting people <laughs> and really with expression, you know, like yeah. I had no idea I'd done that. Yeah, yeah. Some things um, are very deep down in inside of us yeah or uh, similar melodies occur to the same people and sure and, yeah but you know maybe maybe i was just ripping it off unconsciously i don't know <laughs> it wouldn't be the first time mm. how is it then uh you have a finished piece and then you maybe assemble tunes for a record uh any one of those records what was the process uh of then rehearsing it with with the band like how do you learn the tunes together well in the case of hydra it would, part of the reason it took a long time is that we kind of recorded one one of the you know more ambitious pieces at a time um i was fortunate that everybody was such a great reader and hard worker and and just intuitively knew how to interpret the music without me really having to provide much guidance so I would go over to Schooley's house maybe just a couple of times, um, talk things down. I think I probably gave him something to play along with. Maybe I, I just like played into a recording device, the guitar part. Didn't rehearse like all that much. And Ted is just, a, you know, he's just an amazingly intuitive player and just got inside music like immediately. Uh, yeah. So it wasn't as much rehearsing as, as you'd think. Um, just few times maybe for for each piece but then that that adds up because you know there, there are a number of pieces and then thir 39 was just ted and me so i'd go to go over to his house and again maybe it was just two or three times for that for that piece and theo recorded all his parts completely separate after all the rhythm tracks were, yeah. were down it just seemed like the most efficient way to do it Mm. Just because his part was just so involved, uh, he needed the freedom and the time to take his time with it. Yeah, yeah. You guys have a strong relationship. Yeah, and, um, we've done so yes. many great things together. Well, over 25 years we've been performing uh, as a duo, anyway. Yeah, and you seem like a perfect fit. You know, he seems to bring all the stuff that you kind of need for your music. Yeah, someone once told me that he is my the voice of my emotions. Wow, um, yeah. I thought that was an interesting way to put it. But mm -hmm. uh, when I, I don't even necessarily write for voice as much, but I write melodies, and I generally hear that sound 
interpreting the melody as opposed to an, an instrument or even any other singer. So usually, so we've sort of like grown into each other in, a, in an aesthetic way. Do you, do you sometimes sing it when you compose? Do you sing then the, that part or do you, how do you do it? Like his part, um, <clears throat> would you sing it at home just for yourself too? Yeah, sometimes I do that. Sometimes I'll use a cheesy voice patch on a keyboard. Mm -hmm. I wonder how that sounds. Yeah. Well, it sounds better than me trying to sing it. I'll tell you that much. <laughs> But when I'm just getting ideas, yeah, sometimes I'll definitely sing along with the, the guitar part that I'm playing. Yeah. Uh, but where does this um, affiliation for the voice come from? I, I mean, it's not the usual... I mean, sure, I mean, guitar and singing, I, that's... That's a you know yeah, pretty um, big well, concept probably, uh, that everybody uses. <laughs> But it's probably from our duo because um, I may never have come to that decision to, to use voice as my main melodic instrument, um, except that we started. You know, he invited me to do some gigs with him as a duo before I knew him. Mm -hmm. um, it was probably 1993, and you know that. It was immediately, you know, felt very sympathetic. And, you know, I, I just loved the amount of freedom he gave me as an accompanist. Um, and we, we had, you know, s kind of similar aesthetic visions, that you could say, uh, or complementary anyway. So I had this duo, and at the same time, I was, um, you know, I had a trio where I was playing my original music in a trio setting. And at a certain point, I just thought, what would it sound like if Theo just reinforced some of the melodies that I'm trying to play? Because some, you know, some of the parts are involved, and maybe the melody's not coming out as much as I'd like it to. So, so at first, I had him just join us on a gig, and he, and we were just doing the trio music, but with voice, as I said, reinforcing the melody lines, and I, and I just liked the way that sounded. Yeah. And so it kind of kind of stemmed from that. It was you know almost by accident. Mm -hmm. And of course, I've always been interested in, in I mean, I've been listening to rock music since I was a little kid and always valued, you know, song as a form. And I'm, you know, I still feel like no matter how complex my tunes get, which I don't even relatively, they're not even very complex at all, but I'm always trying to find sort of lyrical melodies yeah. Um, that that I resonate with, even if the lyricism is subtle or sort of oblique, um, that's something that I've always valued yeah. so far. It's evident, evident when you listen to your music. Like I, mean, I might abandon that completely, which maybe I should, you know, after a while. But <laughs> just do something a lyrical, just to see what happens. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but so far that's been sort of a consistent thread. I, I feel that I'm trying to accomplish. Mm -hmm. What's your process um, of finding new sounds on the guitar, finding new ways to voice a chord to, you know, <clears throat> through you I found uh, these major flat nine voicings, sharp nine voicings, and, you know, introducing these, um, introducing these, these notes. Wrong notes. Wrong notes uh, and make them sound right and so, uh, so right, you know, that was really an eye opener for me, uh, hearing you play those, those You know, and also really living a note that might sound wrong in the first moment, but really... But it's all about context, right? Yeah. You know, having a sharp 15 or whatever is not super adventurous, really, um, in the grand scheme of harmony. Mm -hmm. But you can make a good case for it if the context 
suggests that it's the right the right place to go and you know and if obviously if you're you're hearing it and if it's voiced effectively you know usually if i put a flat nine on a major seven chord it's at least a couple of octaves above <laughs> the root, mm-hmm. you know where it, it's still i mean that that sounds like actually a very bright sound to me like a like a lydian flat two scale is is not a dark sound at all but it's very mm. very bright of always been interested in harmony and been interested in new ways of expressing organized sound, I guess, trying to get out of my comfort zone and get out of what I'm familiar with. And, you know, maybe in some way trying to emulate the music that I really love from classical composers. Yeah. Can you name a couple of composers that you really... um... Well, you know, I mean, it was corny to say it, but Bartok has been, ever since I was like 16, it's been a a huge inspiration Mm -hmm. for me. Um, What are your favorite pieces? Oh, too many to name, but I'm particularly fond of the string quartets. Which one? Uh, all oh, absolutely all of them. But yeah. um, I did a pretty detailed analysis of the third quartet for for school once. So I, um, I maybe you know maybe the second is my favorite, but but really, really all of them. Um, yeah. I love the romanticism of the first. Yeah, uh, I was going to say. So beautiful melodies in there. Because yeah, and what's what's the one that starts might, with this not, chord? I might be... Oh yes. Which one starts with? I don't know if, if it's the right key, but which one I think starts? That is the third. I think that's the third, right? Yeah. And it yeah. like uh, that chord, and then the yeah. Yeah. Maybe I, I don't know if I dreamt this or if I heard it, but isn't the first. The way it starts is kind of an inversion of the C sharp minor quartet by the Beethoven 131. Wasn't that the inspiration for that? Oh, I don't know. I, I don't know. I, I have to go back and listen to them. Yeah, check it out. I think it's the same theme, like upside down. Okay, I will. Or wow. I might be misremembering. <laughs> um, I, I particularly like the second piano concerto. I love the third also, which I also I did a, an analysis of that. But the, well, it's the second the one second with the is, with the fifths. Yes, the fifth, the mm. moving the fifths moving contrary. Yeah. That's just like who thinks of that, you know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Strings, percussion, and celeste, celeste, mm-hmm. celeste. Yeah, that's beautiful. Uh, I mean, it, you know, I could go on, but uh, so yeah, he was a big inspiration. Ligeti is another another one, mm-hmm. curiously from the same part of the world. Um, yeah. I I actually. I'm old enough to have seen 2001 when it came out. That, that was kind of a mind-blowing experience for a six-year-old. I guess so. And six years you old, and when you saw that, wow. Yeah, so that, so I was kind of fucked for life. Yeah, I guess that. so. <laughs> it's like giving a little kid a giant hit of acid. Wow. And so did, your, did your parents take a, you to, to, to see it? My dad took me, yeah. 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 Wow. I guess it wouldn't happen today, right? I mean... Uh, a dad taking a six-year-old to see a movie like that. Well, what movie is like that? I don't know. That's true. What's, I mean, what's an analog? that's true. I mean, the culture of of parents showing their kids, you know, whatever stuff, it's a different now, I think, than it was uh, back then. You know, it was a little yeah, bit suppose, more loose. Although it, I mean, there's no violence. There's no. There's nothing overtly that one would object to. It's just. Yeah. Very deep and sort of disturbing and an intense experience. But I think you no, know, I, I think my dad would have absolutely taken me, no matter what. Yeah. You know, my daughter is going to be uh, six in one and a half years. You know, I can't really imagine 
her seeing that ape scene in the beginning <laughs> with that music. Well, if you don't want her to, if you don't want her to end up like me, you should probably keep her away from it. <laughs> well, if she'll play guitar like you, <laughs> well, but how yeah, did we so get there? Like that's just that oh, voice, the, the vocal music. Yeah. Um, that, that really stuck with me, um, you know, in conjunction with, with the visual, it just kind of like, it struck some kind of a chord that's sort of still resonating. Mm-hmm. So yeah, he's a big inspiration as well. Uh, I also really love Elliot Carter. A lot of a lot of his works. Yeah. Somewhere deep down, I'm sort of trying to approximate some of these sounds on the guitar. Not very successfully, but you know, this is part of what gives me inspiration to just explore explore things. Mm-hmm. Are there any works for guitar from classical composers that particularly <clears throat> uh, inspired you? I used to have the, uh, I don't know what happened to it, but I had the, the, the great Julian Bream record, 20th Century Guitar. Wait, is that what it's called? Yeah, there's, there's one of those, yeah. <clears throat> I, have a, I have a big box of his music, but I think one of the CDs is called uh, 20th Century Guitar Music. Yeah, um, let's see, there's a Benjamin Britten piece on there. There's um, Hans Werner Hanzo piece. Oh, yeah, these are um, deep, yeah, deep pieces. Yeah. Anyway, that was a very inspirational record. Also, uh, a couple of Leo Brower records. Um, Who's Leo Brower? A really great Cuban composer. Um, mm. I think he mainly writes for guitar. Mm. And really very harmonically adventurous and expansive and, and really lyrical. Just really great stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, Carter has, himself has a great piece for classical guitar called Changes. Sort of tried to look at a couple of times. Somewhat younger composer Jason Eckhart has a couple of really great guitar pieces. You should, if you're not familiar with him, he's one of my favorite current composers. Jason Eckhart, okay. Yeah, one called um, I'm blanking out on the name of this piece. I mean, I, I really love the piece, but it, part of the fascination is that it's something so beyond my comprehension and ability to execute. I, I just love the fact that it exists and that somebody can play it. Like, pretty someone that's developed a, a serial language to a really sophisticated degree but it still has an edge and a, and, and even like a, a lyricism that they really respond to and and you know and just like great lines and, and great textures but i you know to be honest i don't listen to classical guitar like all that much mm-hmm. <laughs> all that being said yeah don't even listen to music as much as i'd like to because uh, um, if I'm in the process of preparing or, or writing myself or, or practicing something to be recorded, I'm just kind of consumed with that. Sure. And like time for concentrated listening kind of gets lost a little mm. bit. So I have to sometimes really consciously, periodically set aside an hour that I'm just going to sit. I'm not going to do anything else but just put on the headphones and actually really check check out some, some music. What's the last I, uh, thing that you checked out which uh, really touched you on a deep level? The Schubert string quintet in C with the two cellos. That is, you know, literally the last thing that I, I really I listened to in a in a deep way. Maybe just a couple of days ago. Um, it's something Which that uh, the Emerson Quartet with Rostropovich on the second cello. Mm-hmm. It's a piece I used to listen to in school a lot. For some reason, I don't know how I came across it. It's not like I'm an expert on Schubert or anything. Yeah. But uh, it always really, like, the piece just is so strong. It really hit me. It's very sort of Beethoven, Beethoven-ian. <laughs> um, and then, I don't know, I just decided to check it out again and found a different recording, which is the Emerson, which 
really surpassed the one that I knew. Mm. Usually if you, you're really familiar with a performance, even if one is maybe technically better, you're so used to the one you know that yeah. it sounds wrong. But but in this case, it's, it was like it just blew the other one away. Yeah. So I, I would definitely recommend that performance mm-hmm. if you're interested. Yeah, I'll check it out. With Schubert, I really like the impromptus for, for piano. Mm-hmm. But I have a... Yeah, just, honestly, I just I have a, to the one in A-flat last night. A-flat, um, um, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you know, with the... This one, right? It's it's my favorite. Um, but I have a problem with all the, re- the repetition. You know, there's so much repetition in it, and every section gets at least played twice in that piece. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. I mean that's not always the case with him, right? But I'm maybe. not sure if it's always the case, but at least in the impromptus, that happens a lot. You know, that's something in your music well, that uh, the parts get re- repeated. But it really feels like a repetition. If you like follow a thought for so long, a lot of people get caught up in using repetition all the time, just repeating one thought. But you take that thought on a, on a journey, right? In that way, that although there is repetition in your music, it never feels like a loop or something. Well, it's much more interesting to see how an idea can be transformed and still re- retain its in- initial integrity, right? So. I mean, that's the whole idea behind developing an idea, right? Mm-hmm. Developing an idea is not repeating an idea. It's it's taking it somewhere else, imaginative. Yeah. That's where you can actually see somebody's mind taking a journey. Yeah. With the decisions behind how the thing grows. Yeah. Um, so I'm not sure what you mean by repetition, whether you mean like literal repetition or, or just consistent adherence to an idea. I actually meant that I have the feeling there's less things in a loop in your music as opposed to other other composers other other musicians as you said before like taking a, an idea on a journey and seeing where it can go that kind of mm-hmm. uh, puts all that boredom that can come out of repetition or repeating something uh, aside you know because mm-hmm. you know the the song is going on that's a it's a it's a feeling that i love when i hear your music like i'll know that After the first minute, my ears won't be bored in a way of, uh, okay, we'll, we'll be stuck here for a while now. And in a way, I don't have to listen. You know what I mean? I like when I get, I get forced to listen because you end up somewhere in a, in a composition and then you feel like maybe it gets looped once or something. But then in the second loop, you already go somewhere else. There's a change there. You might end up in another uh, another place than you would have mm-hmm. thought, and I, I really like that about your music. That the journey is continuing, you know. Although there's, of course, we play over certain parts or something, you know. Right. Well, if I'm maybe if I'm trying to do anything, it's to sort of recreate the most valuable experiences that I've had as a listener, you know, and and, and being taken on a journey, whether it's listening to a great solo, you know, that unfolds in like logical but unexpected ways for a great you know long piece of classical music or a piece like that or, or an experience like that invites invites you in and like takes you somewhere where you've never you've never been you know mm-hmm. makes you feel emotions that you didn't maybe know even know existed yeah so if i'm trying to do anything it's to maybe provide that experience to whoever might want to listen to, to what i'm doing Hmm. What else are we really doing this for, you know? Can you maybe uh, tell me a, a couple of the memorable 
listening experience that you had, you know, living in New York City, uh, watching all the greats play? Things that really changed your way of looking at music, mm. um, changed your playing? There are a few things. You know, some of my, like, really most memorable and valuable early listening, like, live listening experiences are uh, maybe some of the most important. And when I was maybe 17 or 18, I would go down to the uh, the Jazz Forum, which was like a loft space. Um, I think it was a $5 cover charge, and you'd bring your own libations and uh, whatever other music-enhancing substances <laughs> you might have in it. You know, things were pretty relaxed, um, and and uh, used to see a lot of stuff there. So Bob Berg had a really great quintet there. Uh, they used to play there a lot with Al Foster and Tom Tom Harrell. So it was like it was called the Bob Berg Tom Harrell Quintet, I believe. Mm. And I would just sit there like maybe a foot from the drums and basically not move for three sets. <laughs> it was really intense. Maybe just because it was a different time or just because I was so much younger, I, I could really be engaged for three full sets of music. Yeah. And, you know, just saw George Coleman there. Mm. Um, I used to see Joe Henderson at the Vanguard a lot, and that was always kind of a mind-blowing experience. Yeah. Which bands? Uh, Al Foster and Ron Carter, the uh, you know that that trio. Uh, yeah. A few times, and then he he also had a song play quartet with Fred Hirsch, um, mm. which was amazing. Yeah. Yeah, always lots of fun to see to see Joe. Yeah. Did and, you ever get um, to play with him? Oh no no no. No. Another really great uh, sort of unexpected experience was um, when maybe I was like 19 and went out for like a late night snack to a nearby Howard Johnson's and attached to the Howard Johnson's was, was like this nightclub called the Ultra Lounge. And this is up in Westchester. And I had John Schofield's record Rough House and, and oh, yeah. play, you know, just played it all the time. Like, yeah. Just, great record and yeah. uh so sitting there eating you know eating like maybe it's like 11 p.m and through the door that that leads to the nightclub i'm hearing this stuff that kind of sounds like roughhouse i'm like who that sounds like john schofield playing at the sour johnson's like what the yeah. fuck is going on so i so i walk in there and there he is with with that trio uh, with um steve swallow and adam nussbaum mm. playing for like four people <laughs> and, <laughs> So fortunately, that was their first of four Sunday nights that they had at that place. So I just went back every week. And oh, great. It was, you know, again, like for next to nothing, got to see like two or three sets. You know, I was able to take a lesson with him. What was that lesson like? Well, he was playing some of his originals and played this version of like Girl from Ipanema that just blew my top of my head off, you know, mm -hmm. like... So, I, so, like, how do you interpret a stand, you know, because I was sort of learning standards and could sort of navigate my way through the changes, but he was playing so freely over it, you know, yeah. and, and just playing all these notes that were probably wrong or, you know, it just sounded amazing, but I had no idea what was going on. So the, my first question to him was, how do you play out? <laughs> <laughs> Which, you know, I didn't realize how naive a question that was yeah. being 19 myself, but he just looked at me like, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> and he showed me, he showed me this one pentatonic lick where you like play this pentatonic and you go upwards and half steps over. You still know, <laughs> you still know how it how it's going, right? 
Yeah, I don't think I've ever actually used that one. Um, but these experiences yet. of of uh, you know early lessons, they yeah, stay exactly. with you, right? Yeah, no, I remember. I remember everything. I learned a couple of his you know licks. Yeah. And play and I played them back at him, and I think he was a little taken aback. He was like, "What?" Um, and I said, "Well, what are you doing here?" And and he said, "Oh, that's like a Woody Shaw solo or or something." Or, yeah. You know, it was a fun experience. It was probably more fun just to hang out with him for an hour. You know. I've met him since. He doesn't remember the lesson at all. <laughs> I, said, I keep telling him that I'm ready for my second one, yeah. but yeah. we haven't been able to schedule that. Mm. Wow. <laughs> what are a couple of other guitar heroes from early on in your life that you really looked up to and that you learned a lot from by listening or getting to know them also? You know, Jim Hall probably made the biggest impact just as far as how it influenced the way I approach improvisation. Obviously, his, his economy and his, his sort of compositional approach to improvising and his like textural command of the instrument, mm. really exploiting what, what's possible as far as like density and, and sort of orchestration on the guitar. Mm -hmm. And his uh, really deep rootedness in the jazz tradition, along with like fearless adventurousness yeah which is like really evident on the you know the the jim hall live you know the, the recording from toronto in the 70s oh, which yeah. they put out you know the box set that came out from yeah that. it's it's amazing how he plays there yeah and um, it's always so exciting when he plays <clears throat> you never know what's going to happen exactly yeah he's really improvising yeah and it's the ultimate example of just like inevitable surprise you know totally yeah And uh, well, Pat Martino, mm -hmm. totally different approach, mm -hmm. but um, equally compelling to me. Just the, you know, momentum, sound, the you know, the feel, intensity. Mm. It's very, very inspiring. If I want to feel like I play, like I want to play better at a, on a gig, I'll just like listen to a Pat Martino record, and it just like automatically makes me play a little bit better. You know, yeah. Somehow. I know that feeling, yeah. You pick out somebody that gives you a lift no matter when you mm -hmm. listen to him. Yeah, kind of vibrates some chord in you. That... Mm -hmm. I have the feeling that there are either these players who make you feel like I'll never be able to get there, right? Mm -hmm. Or there yeah. are these players who... Yeah, Alan Holdsworth is one of those. <laughs> yeah, true. Obviously. Or there are these players like... Let's go back to to that analogy of, of going to the cinema. I remember mm -hmm. as a kid when I used to go see adventure movies or like kids' movies where at the end you went outside of the cinema and you're like, I can do this too. I can beat the bad guys too, you know? <laughs> right. And I, I have that feeling with a couple of musicians too, you know, either that one, I'll never be able to get there or... Mm -hmm. Uh, after listening to them, you feel, feel like, yeah, like encouraged, you know, somebody gives yeah. you courage to to go there, right? Yeah, maybe there's a humanness that remains in, for, for all the prowess of something immediately relatable. Yeah. As opposed to something alien. Yeah. Um, not to say one's better than the other no. at all, but just take the relative value of each one. Yeah. Maybe you can describe a little bit your memories of working together with Paul Motion in his band, also on your recording as well. You know, the first time, I, I mean, I, I used to go see, there was another live listening experience, was when, you know, seeing him with um, Joe Lovano and Bill Frizzell. Mm. And I used to follow them around and see that trio as much as I could. And their first record, it should have happened a long time ago, was a, really a huge record for me. 
Yeah. So obviously I'm a huge fan. And then in, I think it was 1992, joined his electric bebop band. They had a gig. And at that point, it was just two guitars and electric bass and him. The other and one like, being you know, Brett Shepik or... No, 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 but it was already two guitars. So it was Kurt oh. Rosenwinkel and Brett Shepik and Stoma Takeshi. And then for some reason, he called me and he decided he wanted to do this one gig with three guitars. Not sure why. Did you know him before? Though? I thought I was, no. So I thought it was a prank phone call because yeah. like, how does Paul Motion even know my number? You know, to, yeah. and this was like way before email. So I joined them for this sort of odd gig at the Knitting Factory where we're playing standards. There might be a tape of it somewhere. A lot of strings being vibrated up there. And another weird thing that made that gig a little strange was everybody thought there was going to be the New York version of the L.A. riots that night, oh. which didn't happen. But nobody came out. It was like very sparse attendance to, mm. to that gig because everyone's carrying in their yeah. house. So that was my you know, first experience playing with him. I mean, I had fun. I don't know, you know what he thought. But then I didn't hear him. You know, nothing happened with that, and they I guess they he just continued with the two guitars for another like 10 years or so. And then I guess I joined the band a little slightly more permanently in 2001 or so. Just did a tour with, and at that point it was um, it was Steve Cardenas and Chris Cheek and Pietro Tonolo in Anders Christensen. Yeah. And so we did a tour in 2001, maybe, and then another one like the next year, and recorded some records. The experience of that was, you know, it's funny, it's a little bit different from the small group stuff that I did with him because his concept was very, you know, concise forms, you know, so short solos, kind of very regimented and regulated in a way. And yet we had to find a way to free the pieces up even within those constraints. So that was an yeah. interesting challenge. Um, Would he verbalize that? Like play short yeah. solos or oh yeah well he wouldn't say play short solos but he would say like you have 16 bars <laughs> <laughs> okay that's a short solo yeah or like one chorus and then trade with this guy and it was all it was all pretty planned out you know because if you also if you live have, like, it, when you would play live too oh yeah 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 yeah, yeah. so we'd fit like 14 tunes in a set sometimes but it was so you know it was fun because concept just permeates the whole the whole thing and he made it sound like paul motion music you know somehow and then it you know it was a slightly different experience playing with him with Bill McHenry's quartet because I was just oh yeah sure a lot more a lot more freedom built in to that. That's uh, Roses, right? There's a record called Roses. I think I heard I heard there, Roses. Yeah, a couple of Roses and Ghosts of the Sun. I think it's called. Mm -hmm. Which actually they both came out of the same recording session, mm. but were released like years apart. What did you learn from Paul Motion? Like, what do you consider like a big lesson from him that you can maybe put into words? how carefree and light and yet absolutely serious he was about music like he cared nothing about nothing as so much as the integrity of the music mm. but at the same time you know he's never dogmatic about anything and he, he like projects absolute freedom and, and adventurousness mm. to transcend an instrument like that is is really something special like you always know that it's paul playing yeah through some kind of like weird alchemical thing that he can do he can be um like so supportive and yet so independent at the same time so whatever situation he's in his vision sort of permeates the whole the whole experience and it, it invites you into that and it invites you to access the same thing in yourself mm. 